Hello and welcome back to the Monster Consortium. My name is Sean Prober and I am joined once again by George McMillan. And today we're going to be discussing the great conflict facing Europe and a, a conflict that has been going on for, for many centuries now um, involving Russia and, and the battle for control. And I, I thought we would kind of backtrack a little bit uh, and go back in time for a minute just to give a little bit of context uh, before we get into all of our current news uh, articles. So when we look at today's when we look at today's Germany, when we look at today's Russia, some could say that we're perhaps looking at the continuation of German efforts for centuries, or at least uh, in, in the last two, uh, to control uh, most of most of Europe and, and Russia. I mean, we can go back to General Ludendorff of Germany, paying his his fair share of gold uh, to Lenin and the Bolsheviks to overthrow. Certainly that that effort was repeated in 43 and 45, which of course ended in in the failures of Stalingrad. And then without an army, uh, Germany was able to use economic strategies to bring Europe under under its heel and is now looking to continue that into expanding into Russia. So when the Soviet Union fell, we really lost, they lost 180 million people uh, under their power, 700,000 square miles. And all of this was up for grabs. Uh, so when you had Croatia becoming uh, an independent uh, country, Germany was the first to recognize it. People have said the only real winner in the war in Yugoslavia uh, were, were the Germans. And from this point on, we, we see from the Clintons onward, uh, the United States weapons industry lobbying for, for NATO expansion uh, all the way to. And now that we're seeing these billions of dollars that are going each uh, and every month to Ukraine, it, it certainly makes sense. So when we had our orange revolution, uh, as, as we call it, we have to remember that CIA Director Brennan was actually in Kiev. Uh, John McCain w was on stage with prominent far-right uh, <laughs> members of the Ukrainian government. And at the end of the day, that was a, a rebellion. And it was illegally, I mean, if we're going by Ukrainian law, that entire action of this violent overthrow w was quite uh quite uh, illegal you know to, to their own things uh, it seemed like the the consensus amongst most of us in the west was that when when Crimea was taken that was the end of fair and balanced coverage of this topic and it became this idea that Putin was a, a major threat with a hairline trigger and needed needed to be stopped immediately so that kind of takes us to where where we're currently at um, in terms of this potential deal. At a certain point, Russia and, and Germany had their Nord Stream pipeline. They were ready to begin becoming energy uh, independent, at least from the Middle East, and being able to get the bulk of their trade and their, their energy from Russia. And now all of this is stopped due to, in large part, international efforts 
and, and we're seeing the aftermath of that. So George, why don't you break down a little bit about what's going on with the Nord Stream and where, where you see this going? Well, the whole issue in my other videos, I take on the, um, you know, the 200 and 250 year great game point of view that yeah. the UK has always played a balance of power, heartland versus rimland, uh, sea power versus uh, land power strategy to it. You know, started by Halford McKinder in the, uh, 1898, he, he started that geostrategic program at Oxford. Uh, since then, it got picked while well, he moved to New York and a guy named Nicholas Spikeman started the classes at, at Yale and Harvard. And then they merged it with the Mahan studies at the Naval War College in, in Newport. So it's it's always been trying to, uh, the, the pertinent, just to boil it, you know, boil 200 some odd histories down to a few minutes here. The idea is to keep Germany and Russia separated. Now, after the industrial revolution, it, it, it took on more and more significance. And as technology evolved, it takes on more significance because an infrastructural integration of Russia with cheap natural gas and abundance of resources to German industrial power would make Germany a superpower in Western Europe and would make Russia a major power and a superpower again in Eastern Europe. Um, I go over the six power center doctrine in my longer videos that ultimately Russia becomes a central uh, staging ground to deliver cheap natural gas to the German world in power center number two in a, in a Russo-centric Eurasian system. And then India in, uh, as a newly industrialized, mature newly industrialized country in power center number three then in power center number four, China is a hugely emerging uh, superpower, and then Japan in power center five. So if Russia, post-Soviet Russia, make sure everybody knows that, if they were allowed to integrate, the global center of political gravity would shift from Washington and London to Moscow, Berlin, Berlin and, and Beijing. In that situation, the United States would be rather isolated in its peripheral island, while in McKinder speak, the world island would then be Berlin, Moscow, and, and Beijing with peripheral center powers of, of Japan and, uh, and India also. Exactly. You know, in in a world where germany and russia are friends and operating uh, in this manner there is no justification for u.s military bases all over that hemisphere there's uh, no need for nato and as these programs have been established they, they make a lot of people quite quite a bit of money and uh, as i was saying with raytheon and different partners we've seen exactly that this money that's being sent over there is come is going directly uh, often to these weapon manufacturers who have a ton to gain uh, by filling up the the uh, you know the, the battle rooms of all these potential NATO countries, all these former Soviet countries. If we can just if we can just give them all new airplanes, all new weapons, all new bombs, uh, what a what a fortune can be made from that. 
Yeah, the you know, there's a bunch of issues here because on one hand, um, if you had a, a natural political and economic development path that the United States pursued that, having Russia integrate wouldn't would not have been a big deal. Uh, the prices of products would have lowered with the cheap energy. You know, if you have more supply on the market for natural resources, that's an input factor that's spread across uh, many economic growth sectors. So you would have a drop in consumer prices. So uh, standards of living would go up. Yeah, if you could throw it back to the map. Um, but the other hand is the geostrategic aspect of it which is if this global uh, political center of power shifts from North America to Eurasia, centralized in, in Moscow, then the United States has a chance of becoming a second rate power. So Brzezinski and Wolfowitz and the Rand doctrines has always been, well, how do you keep the United States the number one only superpower and then have the rest of the world uh, switch towards, you know, from more autocratic styles of government to more democratic styles of government. That was initially the point. And in that case, instead of having a constructive dynamic to build these countries up, a geostrategic is actually a negative sum sabotage strategy. In this case, it's it would be how to disintegrate Russia into a whole bunch of republics and oblasts how to disintegrate, well, the old Soviet Union when it turns into Russia, how to build a, um, a cordon sanitaire in the Baltic states, Poland and Ukraine, and even Georgia to separate Russia from the rest of the Warsaw Pact countries. You're gonna take the Central Asian stands and try to separate them from Russia and China. And you get into the old original George Kennan Five Power Center doctrine of you want to isolate Russia from, or Soviet Union back then, from Eastern, Central, and Western Europe. You also want to build fissures between the communist countries of Soviet Union and China by getting into the Central Asian stands and destabilize them. That's what Brzezinski's Operation Cyclone was about, which then turned into the United States funding the Mujahideen during the 80s. And well, anyway, we'll go into the the destabilization process of Central Asia later. But the whole idea is to separate Russia and China, because if they ever uh, join forces between Russia and China and Russia and Germany, then it drastically shifts the global political, political center of gravity from North America to Eurasia. So the geostrategic schools have been against that, where the global um, uh, political economic development convergence schools of thought actually want to have a stronger comparative advantage system that they would lead to world peace. The continent peace triangle is uh, is economic interdependence uh, and multi, uh, multilateral organizations and democratic processes in all the different countries. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, so, you know, just to, to give one final note on this topic, uh, to your point that all of this, all of these desires and all, all this pushes to paint Russia as this untrustworthy, violent, hair-trigger uh, country, 
that needs to be stopped, needs to be held back from influence. Um, and with Crimea, I think a lot of people don't talk about that in 1992, there was actually a referendum uh, by Crimea uh, to join Russia, uh, you know, and overwhelmingly, and they were threatened by violent action uh, by, by the leadership in Ukraine uh, to not do that. So uh, to use that, to use that example, I have to look at, let's say, Turkey. And Turkey's whole violent acquisition of Cyprus. Now, this is not a pariah state. This is a member of NATO. But you would have to say that that an attack like what Turkey did at that point to Cyprus is so is so well beyond anything that occurred in Russia and Crimea that you would have to look at it with that it's some hypocrisy. If you, if you're an objective observer. Uh, of these topics and, and you're looking at well th these people need to be taken over but you know, not not these people and uh you you can understand where these issues where some countries build some strong resentment towards the united states when we do have this selective bias so often so yeah the um with with cyprus i mean you bring in an, uh, an interesting topic the issue with cyprus is uh, or the issue with Turkey, why the United States and UK didn't uh, throw much of a fuss about that as other areas, is because they're, they're trying to use Turkey to move into Central Asia through Azerbaijan because it's a Turkic-speaking country. And they've always wanted, well, especially the US oil companies or Western oil companies, have wanted to build, build a pipeline from Baku into either Turkmenbashi or up to Kazakhstan and that way they would cut what the, these uh, countries have, a, a, or the Caspian Sea, all the countries, is tremendous, has tremendous oil and natural gas reserves and, and minerals reserves when you start to look into the different stands. So the whole idea there was to use Turkey as a means to get into Central Asia, especially after the Soviet Union broke apart. It gives the Central Asian stands away because they're landlocked to export their their resources not get ripped off because they either got to go through Russia or China and have a third outlet so they could actually make more money and develop. But they've had very corrupt and autocratic leaders, and this is where the Wolfowitz doctrine of trying to promote democratic uh, principles and try to break down autocratic leaders and free up resources to the global market you know, had had a lot of merit to it. Yeah, of course, I, I think it's gone too far because the expansion of, of NATO is more to, has been more to take over uh, Crimea and Russia's Black Sea Fleet. And like I was talking about before in another video, Russia only has one southward flowing river, the Don River, that all their agricultural and mineral uh, resources come out, come out of. So they only have one port and that's rostov on don their other southward flowing river is the volga river which flows into the caspian so it doesn't go out you know you can't get out to the actual real ocean that way so they have a canal in, in volgograd um built to to do that but there's only as big as russia is they only have three ports st petersburg rostov on don 
and Vladivostok to export any goods. The other ones are hemmed in. Uh, St. Petersburg is, is blocked in in the Baltic. Vladivostok is blocked in by the Japanese island chain where the uh, where the U.S. Navy is, and the Black Sea is blocked in several times. Dardanelles, well, Kerch Strait, uh, Bosphorus, Dardanelles, and then the Black Sea, where you can only get out through the Suez Canal or the uh, or Gibraltar. So Russia's problem is as big as the country is, and as much natural resources. It's three exports uh, ports are extremely blocked in and susceptible to U.S. blockade, and the United States has had Operation Seabreeze to harass them. So this has been going on uh, since 1992, the eastward expansion of NATO, and particularly controlling Poland, Ukraine, and Georgia as match sets is to block in all of Russia's export capability. And that's what's caused the tension um, where Putin finally said, well, I can't have all my blocks, all my ports blocked in. These countries could have been neutral. The, okay, you're talking about the Euro, Euro Maidan revolution in 2014, well, 2013 going into 2014. There's a bunch of subjects that aren't discussed in Western media that much. Um, professor, the late Professor Peter Cohen at NYU in Princeton, I used to, Listen to him on the John Bachelor show at night. He was talked about how the EU association agreement that was handed to um, um, to uh, Yanukovych was he was told it was going to be free trade both ways. He was told it was going to be um, no NATO acceptance uh, process, and it turned out to be Ukraine couldn't trade east with russia they could only trade west so it's not a free trade agreement and then it had a nato uh office of security cooperation europe uh foreign military sales osce fms is usually what you say so it had an osce fms clause into it where ukraine had to build up to nato standards so yanukovych got the agreement and it was a bait and switch agreement. And when his lawyers read it and he rejected it, that's when they immediately had 10,000 people and Euro made and square. A, a lot of Zvoboda group, sorry, I couldn't get the word out there, um, protesting in the streets. And it was on it was on speed dial. And you could tell that these protests, just like the BLM or Antifa protests, we're already we're already um, set and ready to go, and you you have a whole bunch of Western NGOs. The old John Stockwell CIA officer videos always talked about uh, the National Endowment for Democracy, with the old CIA um, Special Activities Division, you know, turned into Special Activities Center. But they always operated with the National Endowment for Democracy, which is congressionally funded for agitation propaganda. And they've always formed in with the all the other Western NGOs in DC that are all over the world to actually get uh, groups organized while well, they're organized based on the Vietnam era protesters. 
So they're highly politically organized. So yeah, to get 10,000 people out on the streets in only a few hours, yeah, it was orchestrated beforehand. You know, you could make that deduction pretty easily because the, the protests were, were well organized. So yeah, the 2014 Maidan revolution, it seems like you had a bait and switch EU agreement and the protests already on speed dial. So yeah, it was it, it was well organized event. So now, um, now with Russia in in their pariah or Western pariah status, uh, now uh, still engaged in this Ukraine war, uh, we're seeing uh, Russia go the direction of trying to build bridges elsewhere. Uh, it was a failure in Europe to take it back to Turkey for a second. You know, if they had gone into the European Union at a certain point, things could have been very different, uh, even in terms of what, what occurred with ISIS eventually. But we're seeing the West kind of say, no, we don't want this anymore. We don't want the Nord Stream. We don't want these relationships. And we're seeing Russia engage uh, mostly with China right now uh, in, in those efforts. Uh, so could you maybe fill us in a little bit on uh, exactly what the relationship right now is and how how this entire situation really encouraged this relationship to, to thrive? All right. Yeah. So if you had the original, okay, the original five power center doctrine is where, you know, the Marshall Plan where the United States rebuilt uh, Germany and France and Western uh, Western Europe. So you would have an industrial power center in the United States, industrial power center in Western Europe and the rebuilding of Japan. So you would have those three industrial power centers united against the communist power centers of Russia and China. So the idea has always been to that three of the uh, power centers would be in the US camp or be in that, you know, the, the liberal democracy camp. The other two, you try to split them apart. That was, uh, Nixon's strategy, of course, and Kissinger. So the six power center doctrine is the is the one where I named before, where Russia is the number one power center. So Russia has always been trying to be part of Europe. They're culturally part of Europe. Um, always traded with the Germans. You know, deep, long history going back a long time. You know, they fight with the Germans, the Teutonic people, but they also trade with them a lot. So the idea here was. Russia was building its pipelines to Germany. Every time they build one, the United States blocks it either politically or, well, okay, they, the, lately they've been blowing up to save the petrodollar. But after the 2014 Maidan, Re Maidan Revolution, China and Russia made a much, much stronger concerted effort to, um, to integrate infrastructurally, to integrate economically, in national um, uh, instruments of power, instruments of national power, I should say, they use the terms uh, PAMISI and DIME. PAMISI is political, military, economic, social, infrastructural, informational integration, and DIME is shorter, so it's, it's diplomatic, uh, infrastructure, military, economic. These are Klaus Wissian's interests of power because with a stronger, with a stronger economy, you can, uh, you can have a, a stronger military. Your diplomatic relationships are only as strong as your military and economic relationships. So how do you bring those about and how do you build allies? It's through uh, shared trade. And how do you build shared trade? Through shared infrastructure, highways, railways, ports, airports, 
things of that nature to transport goods because economic growth is taking raw material out of the ground, making a consumer product of it and distributing it. So you need the infrastructure to speed up those uh, very aspects of those of those three parts of uh, what you call an economy. So in this case, the 2014 Maidan revolution, Russia and China started integrating, but prior to that, China has uh, went from being energy sufficient before it industrialized after, after the 1990s. As it became the factories of the world, their energy consumption increased and became hugely dependent on Middle Eastern oil, which is completely susceptible to US naval interdiction at Strait of Hormuz, block the Strait of South China Sea. So they started building more and more highway and railroad infrastructure and pipeline infrastructure in their Silk Road project into, well, uh, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and all the way over to Iran. The bonus that it gives to Iran is Iran's always has been on um, Western sanctions since the 79 revolution. So by China trying to reach through and get Iranian oil and build infrastructure to Iran, it automatically goes until all the other stands also. So they rebuilt the Soviet infrastructure into the Silken Road project, which then got expanded into the Belt and Road project. Yeah. And this is all about getting resources from wherever, you know, Africa or Middle East, getting it to an Asian port and then on to overland infrastructure so the US Navy can't interdict it. So they started building ports in, uh, in Myanmar and oil field and refineries to Kunming, doing the same thing as far as building infrastructure in Southeast Asia, you know, high-speed railway in, in Thailand and rail and, uh, and highway infrastructure in Laos and Cambodia. Now it's interesting the the similarity between the UN's uh, initiative program, their uh, what what was the term, the sustainable developmental goals, and what we're seeing uh, with, with China expanding out into your point, building infrastructure in all these countries. So it's not even that China had to pay all of it. There's there's actually quite a bit of uh, help coming from the West to to hurt the West uh, in, in terms of the correlation between the UN uh, and that. So where do you see this relationship going uh, between China and Russia? Do you think uh, if, if is China capable of, of building something together that Russia will no longer have to worry about Western sanctions or Iran is no longer worried about Russian sanctions? Well, the um, this administration thinks it can break up Russia and China. I mean, the, the whole idea yeah. of the sea power versus land power, heartland versus peripheral rimland theory was for the US to always, or UK and US to always work along the coastal rimlands and use its sea power and try to get the rimland countries not to cooperate with the heartland in Russia. Uh, this isn't going to work now because now China's um, industrial center for it to survive Western sanctions, it depends, and its last 
you know, 25 years of, of huge trillions of dollars of investment is through the Silk Road and then Belt and Road infrastructural projects. That totally depends on the Russian Federation staying together. So with the Euromaidan revolution was, was designed to try to um, break away Russia and Germany, okay, they've succeeded, but the penalty for that is, you know, what is Russia and China gonna do? Now they're gonna double down on integrating because if the United States can separate both of them, well, then, then China's whole um, Silk Silk and Road project and Belt and Road project, you know, would have been for nothing if they could. So what the United States has done now is gone to a back to an operation cyclone destabilization process to actually use the instability of the Middle East. And actually, I you know you could maybe you can say they're actually hoping that the terrorist organizations blow up more and more pipelines. They've been blowing up. Some people, of course, would speculate that the um, the the CIA Special Activities Center Special Operations Group is behind these things. Some people would speculate that the Special Activities Center Political Action Center is working through the um, through the National Endowment for Democracy and the Soros-backed NGOs to try to break uh, Central Asia, to try to destabilize Central Asia to keep Russia and China uh, separate. So there's a lot of speculation about the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the equipment left there is it uh, okay, obviously the nation building program is, 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 has failed, uh, but did, has the United States act, or, and, and the UK actively gone back to an operation cyclone destabilization program is, is, is the question now. I mean, it looks like it looks like it has, oh, but getting back to the, uh, other thing about the, the Shanghai, um, cooperation organization, because I started uh, discussing the infrastructural integration to infrastructure, the economies of uh, the diplomatic and military side of it. Uh, to get that going, they need to get away from the petrodollar. To get away from the petrodollar, then they need other things to trade in. India has already started trading in rubles. Uh, Slovakia, um, yeah, Slovakia has been trading in, 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 in rubles for gas. So China has to start trading in that also. So they've they want to have a, a an RMB currency to facilitate that kind of trade. And then and we have seen a spike with the with the ruble with the call uh, right um, at this point. Um, I was I'm not sure if there was a a chart in that article, but. Weren't we just looking at a, a graph to show that the rubles maybe ha hasn't been stronger in, in quite a bit of time? So oh, like yeah. The it looks like the American strategy, uh, you know, by reading, yeah, you know, the Washington Post, watching CNN, it's very difficult to watch CNN, of course, and and the New York Times articles I I, I see on, you know, that come across LinkedIn all the time. It's like, oh, you know, the the ruble is going to collapse any minute now, any and, and it. it 
Russia and China were already prepared for that. They had developed uh, the Shanghai uh, um, Coordination Organization, Cooperation Organization, I mean, and Russia had been developing the Eurasian Economic Union in Central Asia. So they've been preparing alternative organizations to handle these transactions. So no, the, the ruble didn't collapse. And it looks like the American strategy really was, they really thought, you know, the Russian ruble was going to collapse in the first quarter of last year. Then the, then the second quarter, it was going to collapse. Well, surely the third and the fourth quarter, it was going to collapse, right? And no, it keeps on getting stronger. So they've anticipated, you know, it's a game theory type of reaction. Like most Western media is very partisan, but I'm trying to explain things in very game theoretic terms of if the United States has this strategy, well, you know, what's the Russian counter strategy to it? Because they're not going to sit there like a bunch of zombies and do nothing. You know, they're doing something to avoid it. So if UK and Russia have always had a sea power strategy, you know, they're having a heartland land power strategy of keeping all their logistical supply routes over land and minimize any sea travel. That's their strategy. Now, with um, if, if let's think about China's perspective for a second, uh, with everything that occurred in Ukraine and this massive amount of money that's coming from the United States to Ukraine, uh, how do you think that this affects their relationship with Taiwan? Does this make them more inclined to take that next step into militaristic action, uh, or do you think it's preventative? Oh, um, you know, in, in the end, I don't really think it's going to matter. I mean, I, I've been kind of, yeah. we've been kind of, throwing, well, a bunch of people have been throwing the idea around of, of, of what, how China's going to treat Taiwan. Um, I mean, uh, of course, the you know the recent example is 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 Hong Kong. They've just slowly tried to take over seats, you know, in their legislature, and probably the same thing in in in, in Taiwan. Um, they've done a lot of joint force military exercises as far as surrounding it, and they've been doing a lot of practice invasions. But in the end, I I think they'll just you know use that to scare Taiwan, um, but I, I think they'll try to just do a blockade rather than an actual military Inchong-like invasion. I don't, that would be really, really, really bad for everybody. That would kill a lot of people. There, there's different YouTube channels out there that do different kind of mock war games that people can watch uh, as far as as far as that goes. And it, it would be pretty bad. Uh, it would be, well, like I said, it would be bad for everybody. Yeah, China would probably win. The different war games done by people, uh, well, the different uh, shows on, on, on that you can watch on YouTube think that the United States would lose. The uh, United States can't stop hyper, you know, the, the supersonic and hypersonic missiles. And again, when you get back into the uh, Pomesian dime integration between Russia and China, Russia has had a, a, a strong comparative advantage in, in military um, hypertech uh, missiles. Again, it's land power versus sea power. So it's, it's how to sink incoming US Air Force, incoming US Navy ships, you know, battle groups. So they focused on that. 
and they're trading uh, with China for, well, for the Western companies that that moved out of Russia. Now, Russia's been trying to replace them with a import substitution investment industrialization strategy, ISI stra uh, strategies. But you have enough advanced technology in India and China to transfer that to Russia for resources and advanced military hardware. So that's why I, I keep on going back for the Pamese to the Pamesian dime uh, integration strategies because to get one you need you know you need uh, I'll just use dime because it's shorter to get the different integration you really need the diplomatic infrastructural military and economic not necessarily in that order you're going to have the infrastructural economic diplomatic and then military but just to show you these power centers have different comparative advantages and can actually trade amongst themselves and cover down any area that uh, the Western sanctions would have. Well, Russia can just trade oil and natural gas and just buy that from someplace else. Now, for, for the optimists out there uh, in, in our audience, at this point, can it go back? Can can this be fixed? Can this relationship between Russia and the West be fixed? Or, or, or have we kind of crossed the line? Is there, is there a point of no return that we've crossed at this point? Yeah, it's, it's a point of no return. Um, yeah. I did, a, I, I did videos on that and slide sets on that in, in, the, in, in long form. The United States, you know, Baker promised that uh, Gorbachev that they would not move NATO one inch further. They're out of office. Clinton moved into uh, Czechoslovakia and Poland and then the Baltic states. Uh, Bush administration moved, um, well, they moved into the Baltics, Romania. What the United States in, in doing this, and, and Ukraine and, and Georgia, of course, what the United States is trying to do yeah, is, is build a wall between Russia and the states, but they're also trying to block on block in all the ports. The key to taking Romania is you're taking the lower Danube mm -hmm. and you're blocking Russia from sending goods if you if you wanted to through the Danube to the other Slavic states, whether they're in the Baltic, uh, I mean Balkans, or whether in Central Asia. And if you're stopping the Nord Stream pipeline in, in the Baltic, if Russia can still supply through the Black Sea and the Slavic Balkan countries and Slavic Central European countries and still uh, access the Brisbane pipelines into Austria, well, Germany, well, back then it was East Germany, built up such a huge oil and natural gas pipeline infrastructure that's since been spread all over the rest of Germany. If German, if Russia got any oil and natural gas feeds into Germany, then you could have the German world countries, you know, Germany, uh, Switzerland, Liechtenstein, Austria, and the Slavic world countries, uh, Czech, Slovakia, Hungary, Serbia, all those. You probably have about six to 10 countries leaving the petrodollar system to trade in rubles at once. So if you start talking about what would create an economic collapse because we're $31 trillion in debt, it would be that, which is why I go back to saying that the, it looks like the Western 
uh, if you want to use the Wolfowitz doctrine as a as the as the uh, rational actor model that they're using, it's to they were really hoping that Russia would collapse right away, and it didn't, because the first fear is that these countries uh, originally start trading oil and gas and for industrial goods out of Germany and eventually stop using the petrodollar anyway, because you're trying to answer the question of, well, why did why did the United States take this such aggressive action in the Ukraine in the first place? Well, it's to stop that. Uh, well, you in, in grand strategy theory, you call it uh, a Hasafar uh, integration. He was always aiming for that Germany and Russia shouldn't be enemies, they should always be friends. And, you know, Ratzel and some other people argued that um, lately it's been the cornerstone of Dugan's theory of, of a Hossoffer integration of all of Eurasia. So it'd be a Mac, uh, Mackinder strategy reversed of how to integrate. So the United States is, has always wanted to stop, uh, try to stop that with blocking by moving NATO east. But yeah, getting back on to um, that strategy, they've had the bait and switch program in the Euro Maidan revolution after they moved NATO east. Then they had the, the two Minsk Accords, which Angela Merkel admitted was done in bad faith. So the point I'm making here is the United States has had such a series of bad faith uh, maneuvers where they said they were going to do one thing and did the exact opposite, that who can Russia possibly do a peace deal with now? Uh, they can't. Before we were talking about the different right-wing groups that had been funded in, um, in Ukraine. Well, yeah, right sector, uh, Azov Battalion, and, and, and you know, the, the, gray zone, the gray zone with Max Blumenthal and Aaron Matei, they've been doing videos on that. Jocks Bod, Bod, the Swiss UN inspector, has done a bunch of videos on it. Um, George Washington University did a big study on that back in 2019 of who, who are we giving arms to in Ukraine? Um, I, I have the, the links for it um, is somewhere. But anyway, and, the, and these groups were at their strongest exactly right after uh, 2014. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They they were on speed dial. And in 2004, you had a whole bunch of ransomware um, scams coming out of out of Ukraine and Eastern Europe. So all the big Silicon Valley uh, military industrial complex companies moved in there and took control of the ISBs. Mm -hmm. So all the all the cell phone and all the different, um, uh, all the different fiber optics cables for for uh, for internet all goes through these central feeds. So it's all U.S. feeds. So they're able to actually act, control all of Ukraine's uh, information flow and monitor it. So you know, with that, you can build up. Uh, you you got everybody's. Well, everybody puts their information online, their names. Uh, social security or not social security numbers, but their telephone numbers and way to identify people. So you can do tremendous amount of link analysis between individuals in that whole area that the United States has. So 
the question is, who would Russia actually do a peace deal with? And if you just shift yourself to their position, you know, you're a psychologist, you do your Vestahin uh, point of view. Well, who would they possibly do a peace deal with? Uh, you had in March, uh, the, uh, what was his name? Oh, Bennett, uh, Naftali Bennett tried to do a peace, try to broker a peace, a peace deal. It would be going back to the Minsk Accords. Um, the, where the Donbass, Russian speaking areas get uh, more autonomy. Yeah, and it's just like the United States here. We have 50 different states. We have territories that have, you know, like Puerto Rico that have a lot of autonomy. So it's not anything that's outrageous. You have that kind of proportional representation in, in Switzerland. So it's standard political science stuff. It's not a big deal. The United States didn't want that because they they want the pursuit to they wanted to pursue breaking down uh, the the Russian um, the Russian Federation again into republics and oblasts. So Naftali Bennett has been talking about that recently. I think he came out yesterday yesterday and and discussed at the West. Well, Boris Johnson shot that down. The Biden administration shot that shot that down. The different State Department. Uh, people. Well, now it seems it seems as if um, I've been hearing a lot of people say that now Crimea would even for there to be peace, even Crimea now has to return. And I think when you're going to a negotiation and you're saying that we need to return prior to Crimea, you're not making a very serious attempt uh, at creating peace. You're not you're not giving something that they're likely to accept in any way, and I, I think that they, they must be aware of that. Oh, it's it's an, anything uh, any <laughs> discussions where Crimea goes back to Ukraine is a complete non-starter. Yeah, the, um, yeah, you know, for the reasons I cited before, the whole idea of taking Ukraine with the 2014 Maidan Revolution is to take over the Russian Black Sea Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol. And Rostov on Don, their only port. Uh, Lindsey Graham and Mitt Romney and a lot of those people were, you know, the, there's a bunch of videos on them giving speeches to the different right wing groups. They moved from the Catholic Western area of Ukraine into Mariupol for a reason. You're within a short drive driving distance from Rostov on Don to take over their only warm water port. So you cannot have Russian tanks, I mean, NATO tanks that close to Russia's only port without having a war. So it's not just Crimea, it's what it represents. It means completely choking Russia's export economy to death because that Kerch Strait is only, you know, it's only like a mile apart. You, people saw the, the bridge when that thing blew up a couple months ago. Also, the pipe, the North Caucasus pipelines, you would have NATO tanks within a, a day's drive of, of so many of Russia's um, pipelines coming from Kazakhstan. And then, of course, you, you go back to World War II, bat Battle of, uh, of, of uh, Volgograd or you know, uh, Leningrad is to control where the Rostov on Don and Volga Canal is. So you're controlling both their North Supply, uh, North South rivers to export agricultural products 
by also taking that critical logistical supply junction, you're also stopping oil and gas flows from going from the Caspian to Moscow. So th there is no equivalent in that in the United States because you know three quarters of the United States is coastline. Uh, there is no one area where you can choke off so much oil and gas and energy supplies as as is critical in that one area of Russia. So by taking Ukraine, you're within a driving distance of just killing their economy in so many different ways. That's why Russia has been throwing a fit about the eastward expansion of NATO. If you had no armaments in NATO, yeah, this whole war would have never happened. Well, so that's but, the whole thing, and we're we're yeah. constantly told that exact point that that there is uh, all there. Russia is simply upset with these economic treaties, and none of these treaties are are removed from, uh, as you said, military equipment and and a number of military qualifiers to actually get involved. Yeah, well, if when you get into military histories of the, the different Russians in, in invasions. You know, Russia's been, um, I used to sit and just binge watch, you know, the Mongol Empire, the rise of the Turkic mm -hmm. Empire. You go back, you, you watch the the different, uh, you know, Persian Empire and, and, and all of that. And you, what's critical to know there is the, the steppes, Mongol, or nomadic tribes, no matter which ones they are, Mongols and the Turks are the, are the biggest ones. You know, they come out of the, out of the steppes. They roll up on a farm. You know, you got two or three hundred people out there. Imagine you're a farmer. You're just, you're just a family. You, you know, you, you get totally obliterated. So they've always, um, their towns have always organized collectively, not because they're Marxist. You know, the Marxists kind of put a wrong spin on this. It's always been done for collective security, not collective economics. Uh, yeah, one of my pet peeves. So. On the other side, coming from the West, the invasion points have always been either the Polish plains, which are north of the Cas um, Carpathian Mountains. The Carpathian Mountains are C-shaped. Or the Bessarabian plain on the south of the Carpathians in between uh, the Carpathian Mountains and the Black Sea. So you're talking about the lower Danube River area of where Romania and uh, Ukraine and, and Moldova meet. So the Russians have always want that area as a neutral zone. And in the Minsk Accords, again, it's basically to keep that area a neutral zone. If the West doesn't have tanks there, then Russia doesn't need to uh, have tanks there. Russia has been keeping its tanks in the Urals. One thing that happened when um, during the withdrawal from Afghanistan, and different people have been posting this on, on Telegram and elsewhere, was the immense amount of Russian tanks first going into the southern stands from April forward, and then into Eastern Europe, because they knew that the United States was going to do a pivot, because they can read the Wolfowitz and Rand reports, you know, just like we all can. So they started anticipating this and shifting their military resources. So to a degree, Russia was keeping its tanks and heavy armor and artillery out of Western Russia. But as the West started moving 
armaments into Ukraine, it started moving armaments the other direction. So that's the that's what the buildup is for somebody that's been watching this. Now for for Ukraine, I, I guess to to give kind of the other the other side of the argument, we're we're kind of expected to believe that this is an independent country. This is Ukraine, an independent country. Oh yeah, and that they have the right to make the economic treaties that they believe are, are most beneficial. Uh, but I think what we're getting at here, uh, at least, is that there's a substantial amount of influence uh, that is coming from the West uh, to influence the Ukraine or Ukraine. And um, exactly how much control do you think that the United States or, or the West in general have in, in this new Ukraine, this post-Maidan Ukraine? Oh, well, I mean, let's just take your what you said before, because, uh, you know, it, it is a point of understanding or not understanding with the with the Western narrative. I'm really kind of sick of it. I, I we're supposed to have a more objective uh, media, but we never have. If they just did a game theoretic reaction to it, I think people would understand what the problem was. Yes, absolutely. It would be great if. If Ukraine, you know, has a right to exist, absolutely. You know, my uh, my implicit bias is I'm an Austrian school uh, economic persuasion, high, uh, you know, Mises and, and Hayek. Yes, you should have free trade going both directions. Totally agree with that. You can have that. You could have had that with uh, a neutral EU association agreement in 2014. Free trade going both directions. Which is what I wanted, uh, and no military clause. You can have an you can have a movement of the European Union eastward without NATO. Now, if you did that, you would have that kind of ec free trade economic union, which would be the Kantian peace triangle. So, why did NATO move east? And again, you get back to the you know the old five power center doctrine. I. I call it now a six power center doctrine because I had India. But yeah, it's to not keep the global political center of gravity from shifting from Washington and London to Berlin, Moscow, and Beijing. You're back to that again. You know, why move NATO east? Why not just move the EU east? So, yes, Ukraine had a right to exist and they had a right to free trade without NATO. You know, they could have made an agreement. Russia keeps its tanks in the Urals. NATO keeps its tanks, you know, in France and Germany. Well, okay, in, in, in Germany or, or wherever else. And then that would have created uh, a good deal of peace amongst Ukrainians uh, who are, as, as we just saw in that graph, very split on whether or not they want to align more with NATO or align more with Russia. Okay. If they had this complete free trade, it, it would seem to make sense that they would be able to all all have the best of both worlds. Yeah. All right. You get into another problem. Um, you get to the old Catholic versus Orthodox schism yeah. from what was it 1063 or 1065 or whatever <laughs> that was. Um, you have basically east of the Dnieper River is is Orthodox Russian speaking. And you have 
west of the Dnieper River is Catholic, is Ukrainian Catholic speaking. So, yeah, you you could. I mean, okay, you got you have similar divisions in in Switzerland, and they used a proportional representation type of arrangement where you give autonomy between the between the different between the different areas. So, yeah, that could have been done, but again, that's not. I mean, there's a lot of videos that. Well, you have Lindsey Graham on on video. You have Mitt Romney on video. Actually, with these different right wing uh, Nazi groups and actively arming them, from uh, when the United States moved in there in the early 2000s and started building up uh, a Ukrainian army, few people enlisted, but the indigenous or natural organizations were organized along the um, the Banderistas. Those groups were already organized. The nationalist groups. So they ended up taking those nationalist groups and putting them into the Ukrainian army. Otherwise, they wouldn't have one. So that was actually a form of antagonism by the United States. You know, instead of winding it down, they armed them and they spun up the antagonisms. So I think that's a, a good place to end it uh, for okay. today's episode. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Make sure to like, comment, subscribe, share, share these videos everywhere, everywhere you can. And hopefully we'll provide a little bit more of a, an unbiased approach to these stories. So thank you very much, George. Thank you. And we'll be talking to you guys soon. Take care.